Hi, peeps. You're listening to She's My Cherry Pie, a baking podcast from Cherry Bomb. I'm your host, Jesse Sheehan. I'm a baker, recipe developer, and author of three baking books. Each Saturday, I'm hanging out with the sweetest bakers around and taking a deep dive into their signature bakes. Today, I'm talking all things macaron with Christina Ha. Macaron, macaroon, however you say it, we love these little treats. Christina is the baker and co-founder behind Macaron Parlor here in New York City, and she is a bona fide expert on these delicate desserts. I have a confession to make. I have never made macaron, but I have a feeling we'll all want to get baking after this interview. Also, Christina has a whole second life. She's the co-founder of Meow Parlor, New York City's first permanent cat cafe. And, this is amazing, Christina has helped over 1,200 cats get adopted. I've always been a dog person, but I am a new cat mom. And on behalf of my kitty Ray and his brothers and sisters, thank you, Christina. This episode has something for everyone, pet lover, francophile, entrepreneur, dessert person, so stay tuned. Today's show is presented by Le Creuset and California Prunes. Cherry Bomb has a special event taking place in Sacramento on Wednesday, March 8th on International Women's Day with our friends at California Grown. Radio Cherry Bomb host Carrie Diamond will be moderating a panel of local farmers and makers, and we'll also hear from California Department of Food and Agriculture Secretary Karen Ross. The event will take place 10 to 1130 at the California Department of Food and Agriculture Auditorium at 1220 North Street. Here's a word about Le Creuset. For nearly a century, Le Creuset has been creating joy in the kitchen and beyond as the first in colorful cookware, the finest in quality and design, and the favorite of generations of cooks and bakers. Here on She's My Cherry Pie, there's a reason I always ask our guests about the tools and equipment they rely on. You can have the best ingredients around and be one of the world's top culinary talents, but you also need cookware and bakeware you can depend on. Professionally, I've relied on Le Creuset for years when I'm developing recipes, testing new treats for my cookbooks, or making something precise like caramel. And personally, I use my Le Creuset pieces all the time when cooking for myself or my family. If you need a special gift for any upcoming college graduations or weddings, you can't go wrong with a classic Le Creuset Dutch oven, which you can use for almost everything. You can make individual molten chocolate cakes or berry crumbles in them or even use them for your mise en place. Head over to LeCreuset.com to browse their gorgeous colors, find other gift ideas, and snag some recipes. Let's chat with today's guest. Christina, so happy to have you here on She's My Cherry Pie and so excited to talk about macaron, cats, and more with you. Ooh, I'm so excited to be here. (laughs) So I thought we would jump in right away by telling the peeps about your two main interests, cookies and cats, which I just love that, and how you do both for a living. So you're the co-founder and the co-owner of both Macaron Parlor and Meow Parlor, New York's first cat cafe. Could you tell us about each place and also please share how many cats you have helped to get adopted. Macaron Parlor is my first baby. We opened in 2010. My husband and I basically met in October of 
2009. And then five months later, we were silly enough to think, oh, my gosh, we should open a business together. <laughs> In 2012, we opened our first storefront, and we've been doing it since then. One day when we were coming home from our store in 2013, he found a cat outside. He found a little kitten, and I was like, I'm allergic to cats. I don't really want a cat. So Meow Parlor is mostly his fault. It is New York's first cat cafe. I opened it with Emily, who used to work in the Macaron Parlor kitchen. And when we found our first cat, Emily was like, hey, let me show you or teach you a little bit more about how to be a cat person. And then she's, she's from France. And she was like, oh, by the way, Paris is about to open their first cat cafe. And I got so jealous, like insanely jealous. And I was like, I'm in New York City. This is supposed to be the greatest city in the world. And we don't have a cat cafe. Like, how is this even possible? Oh, my gosh. I love that. And I was just filled with just jealousy. I think I came to this point where I was like, why am I jealous about this whole thing? Like, why aren't I just doing it? I have a bakery. And like, how hard is it to add some cats to it? Obviously, they're not in the same space because that's not how the Department of Health works. And the cats do not make cookies themselves, but they're next door to each other. So on one side, you have macaron parlor and you could go in and get pastries and you could get coffee. You could just hang out there as a regular cafe. And next door, we have a space that's got all of these cats in it. At any given time, we usually have between 10 and 15 cats. And they're just free roaming. They're walking around. Most people who come don't actually come to adopt. But when you come to adopt, it's actually a really great environment. Yeah. It's not the most natural environment, but it is an environment that makes a lot more sense for them. And it's an opportunity for you to meet them on their own terms. Obviously, it was a lifetime ago, but it feels very interesting to know that all of these things came together into this whole place. Yeah. Where we landed, where... I get to do two things that I love. And when we first started Meow Parlor, we originally worked with a partner rescue. Mm -hmm. And then in 2018, we were like, you know what? Let's do it ourselves. We got very invested into the cats. We were like, let's fundraise for them. Let's take care of the medical care. Let's bring in more. We could do more, I think, if we had more control over the process. Mm -hmm. So starting in 2018, almost exactly five years ago, we've done 1,218 adoptions since then. Amazing. I love that. So you came to New York City about 20 years ago, and you were doing fashion PR, and you were not loving it. I think your mom suggested that you might be interested in taking a baking class because she remembered that you loved baking when you were in preschool, which just, I love, love, love that little snippet. Absolutely. When I was in preschool, I went to this really cool preschool. They had, like, cultural weeks where you would spend a week learning about different cultures mm -hmm. and it included things like learning a little bit about the language, a little bit about the customs, and also taking us to a kitchen where we would watch like demonstrations of them baking. And sometimes we got to bake ourselves. And that's something that I would take home because my parents are from Korea, so we didn't bake in the same way that Americans mm -hmm. bake. And so to be like, hey mom, let's like make these cookies together and let's do this. So it was a thing that we did together all the time, and my next-door neighbor was my best friend growing up, and she'd come over and we'd bake too. Sometimes her older sisters would get a new cookbook, and we'd bake from there, I think partially because my parents let me do it mostly unsupervised. Yes. So we did all the baking at our house. So it was a thing that I had always done. And even when I was in high school, 
I would also bake during the breaks or when there's an exam or something where I was like, this is stressful. Let me make some cookies. And the cookies weren't just for me. It was just for everyone else because it was like, we need some cookies to lighten the mood. Mm -hmm. I actually didn't know it was a career option. That's one of the things I think that happens when your parents are immigrants Mm -hmm. is that they kind of push you towards a certain certain idea of what success is. And I get that. You are much more stable when you have a job as a doctor, (laughs) as an engineer. And so it was never like, oh, you should get a job as a baker. After moving to New York City, I would spend a lot of time just kind of eating to make myself happy. And I was so stressed out at my job because I wasn't good at it. Yeah, I'm an introvert, and PR is not for introverts. <laughs> and I didn't know that. Like, yeah. I didn't realize that. I think I just really was like, no, I love fashion. Like, yeah. I love this. Like, I can, I can share all of this stuff. I can talk about it. When it got to the part, it was like, okay, what tie should be in this magazine three months from now? And I was like, I don't know. It was really hard, I think, to go out there and to do that part of it. But I was so sad. So I would spend all this time and I found myself peeking and looking into other the kitchens of other places mm-hmm. and seeing these people work. And they were working silently and they knew what they were doing. They were not dealing with strangers. And it was very satisfying, I think, to see them and to be like, that's an option. That's a thing that people are doing. And I then found myself going home at night. And after a day at work, I would just sit on the floor. I would like make a loaf of bread and sit on the floor and put it in the oven and just watch it. And my feet are always cold. So I was like, I would tuck my toes under the oven and just watch everything get bigger. It would turn brown. Like you could suddenly start to smell it. And this is what I was doing. And I was like in my early 20s. Tell us about Paris and Hermé and macarons. Starting in about 2008, I started making macarons at home. And by making them, I mean I was just failing at them, just in the worst way possible. Now that I'm more experienced, I'm starting to realize it was probably because my parents' oven was like 30 years old. Back then, I had never had one before. I had picked this up because I remember reading this thing that was like the hardest thing that you can make is a macaron. And I was, like, obviously up for this challenge. I did so poorly at it. I was baking every day. And I was living at my parents' house at that time. I think I couldn't couldn't afford to live in New York anymore. So I went back to New Jersey for, I think, about a five-month stretch. And during that time, I was, like, baking every day. It was so bad that my sisters were helping me out. (laughs) I was, like, learning about egg whites and learning how to whip things by hand because I was, like, maybe it's, it's the mixer, maybe it's this, maybe it's that. And... I was like, I'm really bad at this. And so I was like, I just want to go to school and have someone teach me. And I went online, and I was looking up all these classes, and I saw that Pierre Hermé, who's obviously the god of macarons, had designed a program in Paris at a professional school, and that if you were a professional, you could take it. So I was like, oh, I'm going I'm to take this class. And the requirement was that it was only for professionals. And they said that the class was taught in French and in English. Back then, you had to use, like, a calling card Mm -hmm. to call internationally. So I, like, bought a calling card, and I called them. And I was like, well, I'm a student, which was not true. I told them that I was a student. I was like, it's, like, a six-month program, and I'm, like, three and a half months into it. So I've never worked at a restaurant, but I was like, I'm 100% a student. I'm totally professional. And they were like, that's acceptable, and you can come to our program. Amazing. 
And I remember I was working at a, a nonprofit back then, telling my boss, I was like, oh, I just have to go to Paris at the end of the month. And I went. And obviously, I wasn't very good. But I thought to myself, because the class was taught like 90% French and 10% English, I was like, that's why, perhaps why it looks like I'm so bad at this class. But the thing that got to me was that I was the third worst in the class, <laughs> which meant I wasn't the worst. Without any background, I managed to be better than two people. Yes. And to me, that was like, a okay, I can make a career out of this yeah. because I have so much natural talent. Right. I'm better than two professionals. I don't know if they lied to get into the program, too. Oh, that I just think that's so brave of you and so amazing that you just put yourself out there. Let's take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Thank you to California Prunes for sponsoring this episode of She's My Cherry Pie. It's a funny coincidence that California Prunes is our sponsor because I love prunes. Last year, my doctor told me I should eat six a day for healthy bones, and I've been hooked ever since. Prunes are also good for your heart and your gut, and they're loaded with nutrients like vitamin K, dietary fiber, potassium, and antioxidants. And moreover, they are delicious. They're 100% my go-to smart snack. Snacking aside, I didn't realize how versatile California prunes are for cooking and baking, but it makes perfect sense. They're sweet but complex with a rich, jammy flavor that complements so many ingredients from chocolate to cheese. You can use chopped California prunes in baked goods like muffins and scones the same way you would any other dried fruit. California prunes are a lush and healthy addition to any of these treats. You can also make prune puree, which is prunes and water blended together, and swap that into certain recipes in place of eggs or oil or to reduce the amount of sugar. For more on prune puree and great recipes that include prunes, head over to californiaprunes.org. Now, back to our guest. Let's dive in to your French macaron. There's Italian and there's French, but we're going to start with the French, and then we'll talk about the Italian a little bit. Now, I don't want you to tell a soul, but I have never made macaron. So I am extremely excited not only to talk about it with you, but then to make them. But I am a little bit scared, as maybe some other people are who've never made them before. The funny thing about these cookies is that there's a, not a lot of ingredients, and it's pretty easy steps to do. It's just there's a lot of technique within those steps that one needs to master, but you're going to be our teacher. So first things first, in terms of the ingredients, there's confectioner sugar, which you recommend either measuring via like spooning and leveling into your measuring cup, or best case scenario, you want us to use a, a scale, correct? Scale is always better, but I don't want to exclude you from doing this if you don't have a scale. I agree. I agree. I feel the same way when I write recipes. Then you have almond flour, which I think all macaron have almond flour. Could you substitute like some hazelnut flour and make, do people do that? Not a necessarily hazelnut flour. Hazelnut flour has a lot more oil in it. Right, of course. So you can substitute it with something else that's similar in properties. So it could be like ground up sunflower seeds. Oh, interesting. If you have a, a nut allergy, but not a seed allergy. Oh, very cool. So I've done it with pumpkin seeds too. Oh, cool. And do you have a favorite brand of almond flour? My favorite is Blue Diamond. I find it to be the most consistent. Oh, great. And you're not grinding almonds into the flour. You're buying it already ground? Yes. Yeah. But I used to grind it when I was, like, younger and yeah. had more time and also had no money. You could just boil it so that the skin comes off, pops off really yep. easily. Then you put it in the oven for, like, 20 minutes, let it roast on 200 degrees, 
Then you just grind it. Amazing. And then egg whites from four large eggs. And then now some granulated sugar. Why does a macaron need two different kinds of sugars in it? The granulated sugar goes with the egg whites to make a meringue. And the powdered sugar goes with the almond. the almond flour to make the sort of like the batter. You want it to be very, very fine to go with the almond flour. And then the granulated sugar... I'm not sure why there's ever been a reason why you don't use confectioner sugar besides the fact that it has cornstarch in it, mm-hmm. which likely is not a good Right, mix. but you're right. Meringue is always granulated sugar. Yeah. yeah. Although you can make it probably with brown sugar. I feel like I've seen a brown yeah. sugar meringue. Yeah. They're a little different. Yeah. But they turn out really well. Yeah. And then the final ingredient is food coloring. Do you have a favorite brand of food coloring that you'd want to share? I really like Chef Master. Mm-hmm. That's my preferred brand that we use. Mm-hmm. And if you, if one wanted to avoid an artificial food coloring, do you have any swaps with like beets or turmeric or? That one's hard. I'm sure that they can work if you get a powder version. What I found when using the natural colors is that sometimes they brown in the uh, oven. Yes. So. Because I like to bake them, like, all the way through so that they're pretty solid when they come out. Yeah. Even if you put in something sort of natural, it kind of comes out, like, very brown. Yes. I've um, had that experience with natural food coloring, too. Yeah. yeah. So I prefer that if we're going to go that route, we're going to go with something that's that you don't mind for it to be brown. Yep. Um, for it to be less about the color and more about the flavor. And then there's also obviously fillings for these cookies, but we're just talking about the cookie part right now. So the first things first, you're going to sift together your confectioner sugar and your almond flour. Do you have a favorite sieve or tool that you use for the sifting? I'm not that fancy. If it's there and I can get the almond flour through it, we're going to use it. Yep. And sometimes almond flour can be a little chunky. Do you try and have really finely or you kind of smush it through the sieve? I try to take out all the chunks yep. um, as much as possible. If it's really chunky, I'll just grind it. And if you're going to grind it, you're going to do it with the almond flour and the confectioner sugar, because mm-hmm. otherwise the almond flour will release a lot of oils. Mm-hmm. And you do this into a small bowl. I know some of these questions are sort of, there's some, probably something you do in the bakery versus something you do at home. But would you use a glass bowl? Would you use a metal bowl? Just sort of anything you can find? I think any bowl is fine. It's, yeah, as long as you feel comfortable holding it mm-hmm. and feel comfortable, like, because you're going you're gonna to manipulate things a lot. As long as it's comfortable to you, I think it's fine. Yeah. Okay, great. Then you're going to whisk your egg whites and your granulated sugar together in the stand mixer on low speed. Could you use a handheld mixer? Or do you feel like to get the most lift out of your meringue, you really want it to be a stand mixer? I think you'd totally use a hand mixer. I just like the stand mixer because I like to go measure everything else out while I'm waiting for it to go. Yes, So for one minute in the stand mixer, you're going to beat the egg whites and the sugar on low until they're kind of combined. Then you're going to do another two minutes until they get milky. And I can sort of picture that. It's kind of a color more than it is a texture when you say milky, correct? Yes. Yeah. And then turn that mixer up to high, and you're going to whisk until it's... it's, Did I say also that it was a whisk attachment? I hope I did. You're going to whisk that meringue until it gets really thick. And I love this. You described it as leaving marks in the meringue, almost like a little trail. Would you sort of turn off your mixer for a sec and take off the whisk attachment and almost run it through to see the trail? Or it's almost something you'll see just by picking up the top of your mixer, you'll see that that whisk has left a trail in it. You can actually see it while it's mixing. Ah, cool. So as long as your eyes are in pretty good shape and you look down, as it passes by, it'll just 
you'll see it. it like it'll start to look like a very tight pack of cotton balls. Ah, cool. And then I I think I know why, but just in case the listeners don't, can you explain why when we make meringue we do it in this kind of sometimes you even have your egg whites and you get them foamy and then you add your sugar. Can you explain first of all why you do the two together to begin with? And then also why it's important to move slowly through the speeds of the mixer. So when you whip up egg whites, basically you're putting air into it. And egg whites are primarily just protein and water. So it's like 90% water and 10% proteins. And you can absolutely whip up the egg whites and add the sugar. But I approach this as if you've never done this before, it's really intimidating. Yeah. Because there's, there's a very small window where you can add the sugar and everything turns out fine. Or you could just add the sugar to begin with, and that gives you a much longer runway. That's, a, that's great insurance. I don't think I've ever, maybe all macaron recipes are like that, but I think that's great. That's really helpful. In an additional one and a half to two minutes, your meringue will be thick. It'll be fluffy. You'll have medium stiff peaks. So for you, medium stiff, is the point of the peak going to stand straight up, or is it going to be slightly bent but very firm? I think it'll be slightly bent but fairly firm. Okay, great. Oh, and I love this, which, of course, I've heard before, but I still want to repeat it. You should be able to hold the bowl upside down without the meringue sliding out of the bowl, which I, of course, wrote in my notes, eek, because that scares me. But that's true, right? It'll just stay in the yeah. bowl when you're at the right stage. Yeah. Now we're going to begin to add this beautiful meringue that we just made into that confectioner sugar and almond mixture. And this happens a lot when you're folding something light into something heavy. You do it in stages. So the first stage is just one-third of the meringue into your almond flour and confectioner sugar. And you even say you can do it aggressively. You just really want to incorporate those two items. And you do it with a spatula. Do you have a favorite brand of spatulas that you would want to share? I don't have a favorite brand, but I always like the kind you could cook with because yeah. I worry about it less. Yes, meaning that it wouldn't melt, that it's yeah. some kind of, yeah, that makes sense. And so you're folding aggressively until it's well combined. And interestingly enough, it's at this early stage that you're going to add your color. Yeah. So is it hard? Because you're adding your color so early, do you have to realize that the color is going to lighten because you have more meringue to add? Or does it not really change that much from this point on? It'll get a lot lighter. I just like adding the color early because that way... I can still think about the color and make corrections before I get to a later point. If I add it in too late and I'm like, actually, I wanted this to be darker. Yes, that um, makes sense. It's too late. Yep, because you don't want to overmix. Yes. Yeah. Oh, that's really smart. All right. So we're adding our food coloring kind of early on, but just people should be aware that when they add it, dark is okay because you're going to be adding more meringue and it's going to lighten. Then you're going to and aggressively, and yes, that's the verb, peeps, you're aggressively going to add in another third of the meringue because you really, you really want it to be well incorporated, correct? And Absolutely. we don't, we're not worried about deflating our egg whites? No. Well, we want to deflate the egg whites. Okay. That's why we do it in thirds. Helpful. So you're aggressively starting to deflate, aggressively again, starting to deflate. Again, you can adjust the food coloring at this point. Yes. So that's interesting. So it's a recipe that's made of something light and fluffy and airy, but in the end, the texture you want is not that airy. It's really weird. So we've added two-thirds of our meringue, and I wrote no fear of deflating whites in my notes, but actually that's exactly what we're doing. As Christina just said, we're deflating them. And now we can adjust our food coloring again. Obviously, you can't take any away, but if you wanted to add a teeny bit more, you totally could. 
now we move into some delicate folding. So we're going to add the last third of this meringue and do it delicately. We're trying not to overmix. We're trying not to undermix. Is the delicate because we do not want to overmix and undermix at this point? Basically. You want to give yourself a little bit of time, especially if this is your first time doing it. Yep. Also, I've seen a lot of people who make this recipe for the first time, and their arm gets tired. Yeah, so that you're also like, okay, you've gotten a really good Peloton workout. Now you can just relax and do be gentle. I like that, that you're, you're like being nice to us. You write this too, which I think is really helpful. If your meringue was really stiff when you started, which is what you want, then by the time you add that last third, you'll be good to go. But if it was a little soft when you started, maybe it didn't quite have that medium peak we were after, you have to be extra careful not to overmix because you can and it just won't have structure. It'll be like droopy. Yep. I don't know if that's the best adjective. <laughs> and then I also love this in terms of testing that batter and making sure you don't have droopiness. You take a small amount of the batter. It's almost like when you're combining butter and sugar for, let's say, you are beating butter and sugar until you see ribbons, or when you lift the whisk up, you see the batter ribbon in the bowl. Essentially, that's what you want us to see. Take a small amount of batter, drop it back into the bowl, and after 30 seconds, if it's flattened out and slowly melts back into the batter, you're good. Yeah, basically. And have patience for this, I think. Okay. It's a lot of times in your mind, you're like, it's been 30 seconds, but it's been like seven. Okay, so real, that's a really good tip, too, because I that's me. I'd be like, oh, my God, it's been two minutes. I'm a disaster. So that's a really good tip. Peeps, are you listening? You really need to, like, wait that 30 seconds. So if it doesn't move at all, it means the batter's still too thick, and you need, after 30 seconds, and you need to keep folding gently. And if it's runny, your batter's overmixed. Yeah. And here's the key question. At that point, can it be salvaged? Not with that batch by itself, but you can make like another half batch. Of just the meringue? Of or the, the whole recipe again. Ah, okay. And then just combine them in. So basically, you're going to just make another one, and then you're going to just kind of fold them kind of in together. Okay. Maybe when you get to like step two, which is before you add your last third, then you combine them. Perfect. And then add the last third. Yep. Great. Oh, that's good to know. So now you're getting ready to pipe or to spoon or to scoop um, your batter. Do you draw circles on a piece of parchment paper and, like, make yourself a guide for where you— I've seen those, like, Silpat mats with, like, little tiny macaron circles on them. What would you suggest for me who has never made macaron before? I like parchment for, like, regular production, but you can't exactly buy parchment with circles on it. So what I usually do is if I'm going to deal with that is I'm going to draw— I usually use the back of a piping tip, and I trace those, and I make circles, and I draw it. But then if, when I'm piping, I'll put another parchment on top of it so that I'm not using the thing that I just drew on. So you only have to draw it once. Oh, I see. And then you save what yep. you drew on. Yep. Honey, you're like the tip master. I love that. That's so smart. And then you can also you can buy the sill pads with the circles on yep. it now. There's a lot of different options. Okay. At this point in the game, can our batter just sit there, or should we have drawn on our parchment when we first began? I think you could draw on your parchment when you begin or when you're watching your favorite TV show, like whenever. But it's okay if it happens at this moment, the batter, it's okay for the batter to sit on the counter while I go draw on my parchment, or is it a good idea to get it done first so I can move the batter into the oven pretty quickly? I think it would be better if you got it first. I okay. think if you were doing Italian meringue, you have a little bit more time, but... 
if you happen to be a very slow drawer, that's yep. not great either. Yep. Yep. Okay, makes sense. So in general, I think preparing your pan, making sure the circles are there, that's a good idea to get done. And is there a specific size for the circle that we're after? Ours are usually like one and a half inches. to two inches. Okay, good to know. You could figure this out, but would you think on a standard piece of parchment that's going to go in a standard half sheet pan, would it be 12 or maybe even more? I like to make it so that there's space between them because they will spread out. So I think you can do 12 very comfortably. I think if you did more than that, like if you were really good at engineering, maybe you could do that. Yeah, I'm not, in case you were wondering. But 12 is a safe number. Yeah. Okay, perfect. And do you have a favorite sheet pan that you're using? I mean, I know it's all a little different bakery versus home. For these, I like to use a lighter colored aluminum sheet pan. Oh, good to know. Because when it's dark, it absorbs a lot more heat. Yes. And that's really great for things like cookies. But this, you want it, you don't really want all the heat to come in just at the bottom. Yep. Makes sense. I actually feel like those dark pans are a bummer no matter what. I just always feel like you don't have enough control. Even for a cookie, like, I just feel like they can brown too much. Yep. And then piping bag with a a one-half-inch tip. Favorite brand of piping bag? No, I don't really have one. I just like it to be... Usually around 20 inches. Okay. I don't have very big hands, but yep. I feel a lot more secure when there's a lot of space at the top. Yep. I Between the batter and the end. Yeah. yeah. I'm literally the worst. So if I use a piping bag, it's literally splurging in my face because, like, I filled the bag too much. Yeah, it's not pretty. And there is a, a tip. I like to use, like, a tip with a half-inch opening. Okay. If you're newer, you can go you can go a little bit smaller than that. If you go bigger, it's harder to control. Okay. And can you use a Ziploc bag and just snip the end? I feel like if you put all this effort and money into making this already... You just go get a bag and a a tip. I feel you. And you have this note that I didn't totally understand, but you said pipe only half the batter if new to piping, which, hello, that's me. What did you mean? Like, meaning pipe half the batter and then rest? Or you meant put only half the batter in the piping bag? Put only half the batter in the piping bag. Thanks Got for it. pointing that out. Yeah, no, I, I only realized it as I was saying it out loud. I was like, oh, I bet that, because I, of course, read it and didn't understand, but now I do. And are there tips for piping? Like, the technique, how do you hold the bag? Should you squeeze the top? Should you squeeze the bottom, the middle? I hold my bag perpendicular to the tray. I'm a righty, so I okay. take my dominant hand and I put it closer to the tip so I can control it. And okay. then I put my left hand towards the top. Are you holding it closed? So I twist the top of the bag so that it's closed, and then I just hold it for support. My left hand is not a very good hand. It's more of a supportive role. Yep. So it just, it's there to hold it, but all the control happens in my dominant hand. And then I just squeeze, and then I stop, and then I do like a twist. Okay. Um, I think it's very, very natural if you've never piped before to squeeze, and a lot of people continue to keep squeezing as they pull back. But if you like mentally are like, I'm going to stop, then I will remove it. You're more likely to have smaller tips or no tips. And truthfully, I've trained a lot of bakers. If you're learning to hand pipe for the first time, it usually takes about 1,200 macarons yeah. before you nail it. it. Because it's such, for some reason in your brain, because I know exactly what you mean, The to get your hand to stop squeezing and to incorporate, you call it the flick of the wrist, is, well, first of all, flick of the wrist, like I'm already crying. I'm worried I can't flick at all. But also, you want to keep squeezing while you're flicking. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's natural. And then do you, you say then to firmly tap the tray onto the counter twice to remove air bubbles. Does that also remove the tip? It should soften the tip. 
It doesn't always 100% get away. Do you go back with a moistened finger? Yeah, you can. You could take like a damp towel and just wet your finger and push it down. You can also use a toothpick and you okay. can just like for air bubbles or anything, you can kind of just fix it. Okay. The piping, that's the hard part. I won't lie. That is the hardest part. Is that really? Yeah. yeah that's how it feels. It's, it's 1,200 meringues. So how long does the baker have to be working for you before they master it? Usually three to four weeks. Is about 1,200 for someone. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to make 1200 Please do. Not, I have to come in and work and, and like, intern for you, and then I could maybe Absolutely. do Absolutely. <laughs> so we're tapping our tray, which scares people a little bit, but that is a – you're doing that a lot with baked goods, like trying to get your bubbles out by doing a little bang-bang. And then you let the piped meringue sit for, like, 10 minutes to form a skin. Yep. Is the skin visible or more you just have to assume after 10 minutes something's happened? It's visible. When you look at it, it looks a little bit more dull, a little bit more okay. dry. Um, yep. And you can just touch it. Okay. So if you were to touch it lightly, and I mean very lightly, yep. if it doesn't stick to your finger, you're fine. You're fine. You're good to go. And if it sticks, keep keep does, waiting. Does kitchen temperature matter? Like if it's a really warm day, does it take longer for it to dry or vice versa if it's cold? For us, temperature hasn't mattered as much as humidity. So if it's pouring rain that day, it will take longer to dry. And mm -hmm. there are some days that are just really, really dry. Yeah. So especially if, if you're hand piping, when you start at the beginning of the tray, by the time you get to the end, it could already be dry. And that happens sometimes. On a really dry day. Yeah. But is there any problem with like, oh, shoot, those are all ready to go in and it's been 10 minutes, but I'm just piped these and I want to Like, can they wait for 20 minutes on the counter or do you run into trouble if you wait too long? It's one of those things where you get into more trouble if you put it in too early okay. than if you put it in too late. Okay, good to know. What happens if you put it in too early? The skin actually kind of gives it structure. Yeah. So the meringue is still going to expand in the oven. And so what you want is for it to rise when it expands and it kind of comes out of the bottom and those are the little macaron feet. And that's what you want. You want the feet to come out of the bottom. But if there's no skin over the top, it's easiest for everything, all of the steam to escape through the middle. So that's where you'll get those cracks. I got you. Good to know. You're baking at 325 for 12 minutes or till the macaroons come clearly off the parchment. Do you like to rotate the pan at the halfway mark or do you not like to open the oven? I don't like to open the oven. And I have a really good tip about the temperature. So not every oven yeah. when it says 325 is 325. So I like to think 12 minutes is my important number. And so if it's a new oven, I'll just make a tray that has like just four macarons on it. So I hit the different corners of the oven and I'll put it in. So I, I check on it at four minutes. Mm -hmm. And that's usually when the feet are just starting to rise. Mm -hmm. So they should lift it, lift up just a little bit. If you look at it at four minutes and the feet are really high, your oven's too hot, if nothing has happened. So you can adjust your oven accordingly okay, based great. off that. There's also just, I want to put in a plug for a, a thermometer, which yes. everyone should use anyway. I know that you and I have talked about what it's like to work in different kitchens and not know them very well and not know the oven. So that's a great tip if you end up working with an oven and you don't have an oven thermometer. Absolutely. Yeah. And then I know what you mean, but essentially once they're ready, you should be able to lift it up and it just comes off the parchment. Yeah. Do you wait till it's cool? And do you use a spatula? No, I use my bare hands, when, yeah. which I realize probably isn't a normal thing to do. Yeah or normal to not be able to feel that. 
But yeah, you can kind of just lift it off. Do you wait a few minutes though, or do you just, or do they come out of the oven and as soon as it, you're not going to burn yourself, you're taking them off? I can peel it off right when it comes off the oven. But again, I know that that's not normal. So it is, you can also take it out and let it sit. The thing is that because I can do it while it's still in the oven, I can tell if it's ready or not mm-hmm. while it's still in there. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you wait for it to come out, you can't put it back in. Oh, okay. So like if you pull it out and it's underbaked, you're done. Why do you think that is? Just because they're so fragile? What happens is that it rises. The meringue rises. Right. It basically, like, the whole thing fills out. If it's not fully baked, it collapses. It's uh-huh. too soft, and the meringue kind of collapses down. So what you want is you want to bake it all the way through so that it maintains that structure. You're basically kind of drying it out so that it's full the whole way through. If you take it out too early and it's not done, it's going to collapse. Gotcha. And so putting it back in the oven is not going to make it rise again. Uh, of course. That makes perfect sense. And obviously, I'm assuming we want our macaron at room temperature before we're going to fill them. Do you leave them on the sheet pan or do you put them on a cooling rack? I leave it on the sheet pan. Okay. I like to not be fancy. I know, right? No, I feel you. So before we get into the fillings, which are so fun and delicious, will you just tell us the difference? What we just discussed is a French meringue. An Italian meringue is a cooked meringue. Can you tell? Sure. Or, or do you not? Just, is that, am I wrong to distinguish a French from Italian in the sense that I'm calling it cooked? No. Okay. For Italian, you, you cook sugar. Right. You cook the sugar, and then you heat it up, and then you add it to your egg whites. It's more structurally stable because you cook the sugar before you add it in. It cooks the meringue, so therefore it is more solid. It has a longer shelf life. So do you do Italian all the time? Because yes. Interesting. By the way, peeps, I have this beautiful box of macaron next to me that Christina brought me, made with love in New York City. Life is sweet on the side. So, honey, are all the ones right in here are Italian? Yes, because we do big batches. Of course. We need it to be consistent between the beginning and the end of the batch, and Italian meringue allows us to do that. Ah, amazing. Do you feel like when you make a French one at home, let's say, do you feel like, oh, that's so much easier? Or to you, it's one and the same? There's less to clean, and that always makes things easier. Yes, so true. All right, I'm going to tell people what you do with the Italian meringue. And it's a little interesting. It's not just cooking the sugar because you divide the whites and cook the whites and the sugar together on the stovetop, which I think is kind of unusual. I feel like most recipes, like when you make a Swiss meringue buttercream or something, you're heating your sugar, but the egg whites are all over in your stand mixer. Do you know what I mean? And you add them afterwards. Do you think that's just the extra stability that adding those whites to the sugar gives you in an Italian meringue? I guess I'm just trying to understand the science of why the whites are both in the hot sugar and also then added to the whites that are at room temp. So remember how we divided up the meringue and the French meringue into three parts? Yes. So the Italian meringue is actually much stiffer. And instead of having to deal with all of that, we just take the unwhipped egg whites and just do that as our first step. So we mix the egg whites with the confectioner sugar and the almond flour. And that's fairly easier because you're going to break it down anyway. Yep. Because the Italian meringue is so strong. So there's really no point in making this huge meringue that you're going to do this to because your arm's going to hurt a lot. Yeah, I feel you. And just so I understand, a classic Italian meringue is always the sugar and the whites warmed on the stovetop. That's a Swiss meringue. For an Italian meringue, you're going to whip up your egg whites, and then you're going to heat up sugar. For us, we do it to about 245 degrees Fahrenheit. Well, we heat up the sugar with water. 
And oh, we, I thought you had the whites divided, and you had some of them with the sugar and the water, and then some of them so separate. We do divide it, so we'll have half of the egg whites go and make this meringue, and half of the egg whites stay I understand. behind. I understand. So then you have the cooked meringue, the cooked sugar and white that are added to the white that have been combined with our dry mixture of confectioner sugar and almond flour, and then we just have one job of combining those two things. Or do you do it in three? I divide that in half. So the first one is just the unwhipped egg whites, the confectioner sugar, almond flour, and then I add about half of the meringue into that, and that's my step two. And then the third one is then I add the rest of the meringue, and that's where I start to to incorporate it. And you're doing it gently for that last one, or you don't have to be quite as worried about that? You don't have to be as gentle. I find that if while I'm mixing it, as long as I can still see streaks of the white meringue, I can be a little bit more rough. Yep, I understand. And as soon as that's gone, then I start to slow down. When's the moment for the food coloring when you're doing Italian meringue? You could do it the same. Same, same. And does it taste any different, or it's a more stable product? So when I was in Paris, they said that the French meringue has the best flavor. And the Swiss meringue has the worst flavor, mm-hmm. but the best structure. Uh, um, and that the Italian meringue was kind of a compromise of both uh, of those interesting. things. I personally don't taste it that much if it's a relatively young macaron, because they have a pretty long shelf life. But if they've been out for a long time, I can taste that something is a French meringue because they start to break down a lot faster. Yeah, interesting. All right, now we get to talk about the delicious fillings that go inside these cookies. First of all, what's the most popular filling? Red velvet, which Uh is filled with the cream cheese filling, and s'mores. Yum. Tell me about the s'mores one. So we use a brown sugar shell, and then we make a ring of chocolate ganache, and then we put marshmallow fluff in the center. Oh, my gosh. I am a huge marshmallow fluff fan. So there's a salted caramel buttercream that does sound really good to me, which is granulated sugar, vanilla pod, heavy cream, Flair de sel, is that, is that like just like a flaky sea salt, like yep. a Malden, and then chilled butter? So you make the caramel on the stovetop, and I love that you don't require a candy thermometer. Nope. Yep, I love that. The fewer tools, the better. And you're kind of just looking for the color to yeah. know when you're ready to go. Like a honey color. Yeah, honey, love. And then you're going to whip the caramel in the stand mixer to cool it and whip it up, and then you're going to add that butter. Yep. Perfect. And that's a stand mixer, yes? You could probably do a hand mixer. Okay. Then there's also a pistachio ganache, which sounds delicious. What cookie do you usually match with pistachio? So you can actually, for the shells, usually you could sub out 10% of the almond flour with for something pistachio. else. So we sub out about 10% with pistachio flour. Oh my gosh, that sounds so good. So the pistachio ganache is heavy cream, white chocolate. Do you guys have a favorite chocolate brand? I really like Valrona. I yeah. think it's not too sweet. I love Valrona too. And the pistachio paste, you said pure is best rather than having a lot of additives in there. Yeah, you just want to double check. Pistachio paste is super expensive. It is. But sometimes it's actually made with almond paste instead. So it tastes like marzipan instead of like pistachios. Yeah. Also, I've made it from scratch, just putting pistachios in the food processor with sugar. Would you ever do that or no? You could. Yeah. Absolutely. So here it's easy. It's a ganache. So you're heating your cream, pouring it over your paste and your white chocolate and salt, and then whipping by hand, or would you put it in a stand mixer? You could do it by hand. Okay. Would you guys at the bakery? Yeah. That one, we actually usually use a burr mixer. Ah. Then there's this dolce de leche ganache. What would you do that one with, cookie-wise? 
So we do it with the party time, which actually, it's a macaron, and then we take all of the macarons that didn't make the cut, and then we grind them back up and make these little, it looks like funfetti, basically. Oh my god, I love. So that way, it's got all these colors in it. It's a good time. That's really pretty. So this one is heavy cream, milk chocolate, Valrona again. Dolce de Leche, is there a brand? Are you guys making it, or you? No, I don't know what brand. Oh, we use David Rosen. Okay. But yeah, I think you could use any brand. Dolce de Leche and Flair de Sel, and it's the same idea as the pistachio ganache. You're heating your cream, you're pouring it over your Dolce de Leche and your milk chocolate, and you're whipping. And then chocolate ganache, pretty classic. Is there a percentage of chocolate you like in this? I like for it to be above 50%. You can obviously go much darker, but the butter that's in this recipe makes it much richer. It has a much smoother mouthfeel. It tastes much richer than it is. So you don't have to go to your 70% or higher because it's going to have a very rich flavor to it. Yeah. So for this one, you're making the ganache like you have in the other recipes, but when it's warm but not hot, you're just whisking in the butter, which I assume you can do by hand. Yeah. And then chill, chill it before piping. Yep. How do you make a vegan macaron? What do you do for the egg whites? So there are a lot of different options. Basically, you're looking for something that has like a protein source and water. I had tried it originally with aquafaba, which works fine. Can you tell people what aquafaba is in case they don't know? Yeah, aquafaba is basically the liquid that comes when you boil chickpeas in water. So it's this liquid that's left behind that kind of has the texture of egg whites. Usually, you can even get it if you buy a can of chickpeas and you just pour out the liquid. In that case, you would just want to boil it down until it closely resembles the way that egg whites look. One of the things I I found with making it with aquafaba is that the meringue that you make expands too rapidly, too much in the oven. So you need to bake it at a much lower temperature. But also, it has a relatively short shelf life. Mm -hmm, Makes sense. So if you make it... You want to eat it usually that day mm-hmm. or within 24 hours or else the filling will start to leak through. Or a lot of times people use like a more like a buttercream type of filling. What do you guys use if you can't use the aquafaba? So I prefer a potato protein, which is something you can buy online. Mm-hmm. And you just get this powder and you mix it in with water. I add a little bit of xanthan gum to mm-hmm. make sure that it's a little bit more stable. Mm-hmm. And it's very similar Like the end product is actually very, very similar. The only thing that I find about it is that I can't make large batches. I use the Italian meringue and everything, but I find that if I make the batch too big, then the quality goes down between the beginning and the end of the batch. Are the vegan ones super popular, so you wish you could make a lot more of them? Or are you kind of making a nice amount for the demand? We're making a nice amount for the demand. I think that people are moving to be more plant-based. I think that we're all very conscious about the role that we play on the environment in terms of how we eat and what we eat. So I love that it's an option. I love that it's there. I'm very, very proud of what we make. I love when people come in and they're like, I have not been able to eat this in 10 years. And I'm like, it tastes the same. And that makes me really excited. If we get to a point where we can make a lot more vegan macarons, I think that would be amazing. How far in advance can you make these fillings? Could you make the filling before you made the macaron? You can make it months in advance. You can. And just throw it in the freezer. Yeah, I love it. Could you also make the cookies, you have them on the sheet pan, and then make the filling? Or would you suggest that the filling be ready when the macaron come out of the oven so they're not sitting around for too long? I don't think it really matters. The one thing, like if you, especially if you did something like the buttercream, 
as soon as you finish mixing it, you could pipe it. The other ones, though, they have to set up a little bit longer. So if you're going to do it, I would say make the filling first and then make your macaron. And it will kind of set up by the time your macaron come out of the oven? It should. Okay, awesome. How much filling goes into the middle of a macaron? It's funny. When they trained us, they were like, oh, make sure that once you put it in, it's double the weight of the cookies. Yep. I think we do it by eye to make sure that, like, you can see it. This part of macaron making is so interesting. So once they're filled, they have to go inside of the refrigerator for 24 hours. Can mm-hmm. you explain why? It's sort of the same concept as bread pudding, where it's better the more stale your bread is. The way I like it is that you cook the cookie all the way through. So it is, it's a pretty dry cookie when it comes out of the oven. And then these fillings are like relatively wet fillings in the grand scheme of things. So when you put it on there and you give it time to mature, so the shells end up absorbing the flavor through the entire shell. And you want to give it time to do that. And so after about 24 hours, it'll be a different texture. You'll go from a very dry, hard cookie to something that is soft and that has flavor throughout the whole thing. So that starts usually around 24 hours. If you could get to 48 or 72 hours, even better. The other thing that's amazing about them is you could also freeze them. After they're filled. After they're filled. You could freeze them before they're filled, after they're ah. filled. And so one of the things that I used to love doing, like before we had a, our own bakery, was, you know, I'd make these batches and like maybe eat a few, but then freeze the rest so that if someone came over and you're never expecting guests when they show up and you're like, oh, look at what I just I cough. just happened to have some macaroon. And yeah. you just, you pull it out, you just let it sit out for about 20 minutes and let it get to Would you top. ever freeze them and serve them at the bakery? Yeah. Yeah, because I, I would think like, why not? You can get pretty far ahead if you if you do that. Yeah, amazing. And, and what's the technique? I assume if you're freezing cookies, are you freezing them on the sheet pan, and then once they're frozen, putting them into fish bins? We have a specially designed cases for oh, them. Oh, beautiful! So we pack everything up, and then you can take that and you can freeze it. Oh, amazing! And do you prefer to freeze them before they're filled? I usually don't. I usually prefer after filling yeah, because them because then it's so easy. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Would you fill them, do the 24 hours in the fridge so you know the texture's right, and then freeze them? I think that's probably the easiest way to go. But sometimes you don't have the 24 hours. Or sometimes you know that, like, right now, I'm really busy. I don't want to babysit this. And you could just take them and move them from the freezer to the fridge and then serve them the next day. Got you. Got you. Can you tell us about the character mackerel that I saw on the site? They're just so adorable. A couple of years ago, I think, I started to see that other people were making these different shaped ones. And I was like, I want to do that, too. And so we just, at that time, I think that happened right around the time that we started Meow Parlor. So we started off by making just cat-shaped ones. So they were just like regular circles, and we put little ears on them, and then we drew in their faces. I think if you go back far enough, you can see, like, things have changed. People are putting a little bit more time into it and are, are making it very beautiful and very intricate. For cases like that, if I'm going to do that, it ends up having to sit for a really long time while you're doing it because it could be like I'm doing one part of it and I'm going to use the same color, but it like you need to see like a distinct thing. Then I have to let it dry completely yeah. before doing another layer on top of it. So in that case, I would recommend only really using silpats for yeah. making them. This is kind of a testament. This one is like you should probably use an Italian meringue for it. But also, I let it sit out for a really long time before I bake it. 
just to make sure that all of the parts are dry because you're layering on top of each right. other. That's how you make the shapes to make. So you're piping the meringue, but then you're piping these little ears and then drawing on it. Yeah, sometimes it depends on what it is. Sometimes we'll draw on it. Sometimes we'll use royal icing afterwards. Yeah. Kind of it depends on the design. I think if I'm doing eyes afterwards, I like to do it in royal icing. Yep. But, like, whiskers don't look as nice in royal icing. So yeah. if you just use, like, a very fine pen, that comes out a lot nicer. I think mastering the circle shape probably important. But once you get past that, and I don't think macarons are all that scary yeah. anymore. Once you get past that, then there's a whole new set of challenges that you could do. You could be like, I'm going to do different shapes. I'm going to make characters. I'm going to do all of these different things. And I think that's the thing that's really fun about it. I love that. I have learned so much. I can't wait to make them. But before we say goodbye, I did just want to tell you my cat story, Yes. which is that please don't hate me, but I was never a cat person. I was always a dog person. I didn't understand cats. Same. And my teenager was desperate for a cat. And I was like, absolutely not. I'm not getting a cat. I finally broke down last year. We got him a cat. He's allergic. My husband's allergic. So we got him this a, a cat called a bangle, which is a hypoallergenic cat. And oh my gosh, Christina, I'm so madly in love with him. I mean, I'm like getting teary. I love my cat so much, but I just want to tell you that I'm converted and I'm going to come to Meow Parlor and just hang out. Because now I'm a cat person. Please. Yeah. Cheat on your cat with our yeah, cats. Yeah, I know. Oh, my God. That is so scary. But Ray, Ray, maybe it would be nice because then I'd come home and I'd smell like cats. And Ray would be like, where was mom? Anyway, thank you so much for chatting with me, Christina. I loved talking about macaron with you. And I just wanted to tell you that you're my cherry pie. Oh, thank you. That's it for today's show. Thank you to Le Creuset and California Prunes for sponsoring today's episode. Don't forget to subscribe to She's My Cherry Pie on your favorite podcast platform and tell your baking buddies about us. She's My Cherry Pie is a production of the Cherry Bomb Podcast Network and is recorded at City Vox Studios in Manhattan. Our producers are Carrie Diamond and Catherine Baker, and our associate producer is Jenna Sadu. Thank you so much for listening to She's My Cherry Pie, and happy baking! <laughs>